and welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. And in this episode, we'll be discussing Chapter 11 of the book Customer Satisfaction. Chapter 11 is monitoring performance over time. And I think what I like about um, this chapter is it's starting now to see customer satisfaction measurement as not, or the surveying, not as a single event, but something that's going to be measured over time. And how do you measure that performance over time? Mm. And we've talked about when you scope out the initial project with the questionnaire being right, how you've got to have that medium term view in terms of monitoring performance over time. Yeah, and I think we often talk about all your baseline measure is your sort of line in the sand. And that's all very well, but you need a line in the sand, not 20 lines in the sand, don't you? Um, and that raises a question. How, what do you use as your measure of, are we going in the right direction? Absolutely. So I think one of the questions that I'm asked a lot after the first survey, the baseline survey, at the end of the results presentation, how often should we remeasure? Yeah, and the the, uh, the sort of the quick and weaselly answer is it depends. Um, I think it... it For a start, I think we need to distinguish between a relationship survey and an event-driven survey. So, you know, a a tracking, ongoing, event-driven survey, you'd expect to be, again, it very much depends on the business, but let's say monthly, perhaps weekly, perhaps ongoing, you know, right, you know, um, real-time type thing. Uh, But yeah, more often monthly or quarterly. A relationship survey, I think, for the vast majority of businesses once a year is about right. Um, yeah. I think there is a case, depending who you are, for, for wanting to know perhaps quarterly, but but I think probably not more often than that. Yeah, and I, I think good advice, particularly in sort of the, the year one to year two baseline relationship survey, is you've got to have started to do things as a mm. result, even if customers may just be beginning to notice or have not yet noticed. Um, there's no point if you've done nothing surveying again, otherwise it'll show the results are very similar, if not a tad downwards, because mm. you've done nothing based on last year's last year's feedback. Yeah, I mean, you do occasionally get that, where, where you, you know, run survey in year two, the scores are very much the same, or perhaps even a little bit down, um, and the company will be thinking, well, but what's the point of measuring customer satisfaction? Our score doesn't change. And if you ask, well, have you done anything about it? No. So it, it, you do have to have done something about yeah. it for customers to have to think you've got better. Yeah. Or sometimes where you you can see the organisation have done a lot, but we haven't told customers about it because customer loyalty is memory based. Mm. Yeah, very good. Yeah, let's <laughs> um, call back to a previous episode. Thank you. Um, I think part of it is detail here often comes through in the comments actually um, it's sometimes comments change a bit before scores do so you sort of see people going well we'll see you know yeah. it's a little bit better but we'll see so yeah. I'm still going to give it a seven for now um, and I think that's quite a good sign in some ways that that or perhaps a, a, an in, interesting indicator we yeah. did the survey a little bit too soon as, as a little bit of a, a tip I think a good question on a year on an update or a year two survey, regardless of tracker relationship, where you know the score might not have altered, 
is just to ask a question, you know, over the last 12 months or three months, do you think the service you have mm. got has improved, stayed the same or deteriorated? And why do you say that? Because I find that sometimes the numbers might not alter because people are still holding court and waiting to make that judgment, mm. but they have a gut feel saying, well, I think this has got a bit better. Or I actually think this has deteriorated a bit, which starts to help you keep the momentum going if perhaps the numbers aren't quite showing yeah. that at, at, at the moment. And a lot of it's very common sense as well, isn't it? The, it? Depending on the nature of the relationship. So let's say it's a B2C event-driven survey. Yeah. So it's about, let's say it's an insurance claim for the sake of argument, or applying for a mortgage, or yeah, any, any of those kind of one-off transactions that don't happen all that often for any individual customer. In principle, at least, it, it can be quite quick to change perceptions there because they are about a specific transaction. Yeah. And if you completely revamp your processes and your culture, then that should, the, ch- the scores potentially could change overnight. It's easy, harder than that in practice, but, yeah. but it, it, in theory, they could change overnight. A relationship survey, there's always this kind of flywheel weight that you've got to get chain moving in a different direction. There's always that momentum and, and the weight of history. So again, even if, you, even if you do change all your processes and your culture overnight, it will take three years for customers all to notice that. It's steering the oil tanker, isn't it? It is, very much, the, yeah. The, what was your phrase there? There's something of history. The weight of history or something, uh, I'm I, not I sure. I like that. I like that. I'm not, all right, the weight of history. Yeah, it, 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 it makes a point very well. I think one of the things that the chapter then covers is what is the best overall measurement and there's probably a couple of different angles. The, the chapter doesn't go, it, well, it depends on what you want as your headline measurement. Do you want ease, trust, net promoter score, index? But I think the other thought behind that is then how accurate do you want that tracking measurement to be? Are you paying monthly bonuses on it at a tracker? Are you paying annual bonuses on it? So there's some other things that go into that when you start thinking about what should be the metric we are, are using to measure or monitor performance over time. There are, yeah. So, I mean, I think we could probably just just to say, as in passing, really, that having a, a, a composite index as your headlines, basing it on more than one question, yeah, gives you a more reliable result given the same sample size than any single question. And that's because it doesn't have the random error. Yeah, so random error kind of cancels itself out uh, across all those questions. That's not an entirely technical explanation, but that's that's broadly true. I think, you know, given that, uh, you then get onto a question of your measure is always going to have a margin of error attached to it. It's up to you how big that margin of error is, but, you know, it's going to end up costing you a lot of money to get it to be very, 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 very small. So you need to think about sort of cost versus benefit of sample size versus the margin of error you need. What frustrates me, I guess, as a researcher, is people not addressing that. They just say, well, I can afford a sample size of 200, so a sample size of 200 it is, and I won't think about whether that's good enough for what I need. Yeah, yes. Um, Usually you don't quite need large sample sizes in customer service that you do need in some other research to get the results um, I'm thinking of the positive skew here, the fact the way you're looking at me like that is slightly making me worried. Uh, but you can get some pretty reliable results with sample sizes of 200, certainly 500. Won't just I think it depends what you mean by pretty reliable. So, so yes, I think you're right that the customer satisfaction surveys 
tend to have a, a sort of, well, in technical terms, a smaller standard deviation. Yeah. So, so yeah. people tend to agree more often within the customers, so they generally yeah, like so, you. So they're so the, the broadly a similar group of people, I guess. Yeah. Still, I think sometimes people need to think more deliberately about what sample size do we need for for what we're doing with this yeah. survey. So is your concern here that people would be paying bonuses on it or drawing conclusions and insight that aren't correct from it? More more that, yeah. So I think it's when you when you end up with not quite big enough sample sizes and you know a score that fluctuates let's say quarter to quarter, I think often businesses get trapped into a kind of knee-jerk reaction to what is almost certainly random sampling variation yeah. um, rather than real underlying change. So it's, yay, the score's gone up. Oh, no, the score's gone down again. Yay, the score's gone up. And we weave a narrative about that to explain, oh, well, that's because demand went up in July and, yeah. oh, yeah, but then we had some new people joining in August. And we, ex- we find explanations and actually there's probably nothing really going on but all that knee-jerk reaction and narrative weaving is yeah. distracting us from making fundamental change that might move the needle. Yeah. Which, interestingly, would be one of the downsides that a lot of people put against Net Promoter Score is it goes up and down you know, without any real reason as eights become nines or sevens become Absolutely. sixes. And I think that moves us on to quite an interesting point. And it, it's something that, that we see with experience, but the score doesn't tend to move very much quarter to quarter or even perhaps year to year and I think people or organizations and especially when they come to setting targets sometimes can be said hold on if we do this you know within two years we will be top quartile we're bottom quartile now but we're enthusiastic we're going to address things we're going to do things our target is to be top quartile in two years time what do you think when the client says that I think um good luck um and Prove me wrong, but it's very, very very difficult. I I think, as we said before, in an event-driven survey, it's a bit easier. Yeah. And frankly, it it slightly comes down to the size of the business you are as well. You know, if you're if you're a a, you know an SME with a relatively small number of customers, I think it's a bit easier. Yeah. But satisfaction takes a long time to change. The kind of changes you're going to need to make in order to, to really you know, step from bottom quartile to top quartile. Well, we, we set targets for people which, which have this kind of diminishing returns slope on them. Yeah. And there's a very good reason for that. It's relatively easy, easier at least, to go from bottom quartile to mid-table. Yeah. You know, that you can do in, in two years. You correct what's going wrong. Yeah, you fix the massive problems and, and you're probably back to mid-table. It's very, very much harder to get from mid-table to top quartile. It probably is exponentially harder, I think. I think part of it is understanding where people set out from that baseline survey. You probably are looking at realistically a five-year journey, you know, perhaps three years. But it, it, it's that medium-term view. This isn't going to, you know, you're probably going to have to start altering the culture. We've said before or previously future loyalty memory base. So it's a perception you've got to do as well as doing the things. But I think what we see, and particularly where we sort of speak at conferences and our own client conference, if people do it, what you're changing is something, it does change over time and it's real and it's solid and it's substantial and it's not just a, oh, we've done that and it's gone up and it's gonna drop down again. You are fundamentally changing something 
for the better, something robustly for the better. I can't find the mm. exact word I want to say here, but you, you are changing it solidly for mm. the better. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think one of the things over the years I've, I've kind of, and I couldn't articulate quite well this is true, but I... I don't really like it when one of my clients leaps forward in index. No, no you know it's going to. I'd be rather working. see three years of of Steady moderate improvements. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's. I guess I've just learned over the years that it's a, a better predictor of where they're going to be in five years' time if they make you know two or three years worth of of small but significant steps upward um, than one leap. Yeah. So in terms of having. A, you know, the best measurement is the one you would tend to sort of default to as a general as a general rule. I I have to say I think with a caveat. So if your questionnaire was properly developed using qualitative research to understand the lens of the customer and all all of the stuff we would always talk about, then I think a satisfaction index based on that list of questions that the customer has told you are most important is always going to be your most reliable and the kind of fairest measure of, of your overall performance. Um, so yeah, a customer satisfaction index for me. Yeah. That's not to say that I think you know, net promoter score is useless. Um, it has strengths um, and it has weaknesses. And one of its strengths is it is one question. So yeah. why not have that on the questionnaire as well? Yeah. I think you know, there are flaws in net promoter score as well. Yeah. Probably now is not, not the right time to dive into a rant about that. But, but, but it, you know, why not have it on the questionnaire? Customer effort, I think it suits particular types of survey. So I think it's much better suited to transactional research. It's much better suited to kind of inbound B2C contact centres. That's where, for me, it really fits. And that's where it was born. And that's where it was born, absolutely. And what about the metric 10-point numeric scales rather than 5-point numeric verbal all that sort of thing to make sure measurement is as precise as possible. Yeah, and I think there's just there's no real debate in the industry anymore that, that a ten point numerical scale is 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 not only easy for customers and good for analysis, but but also just that right balance of kind of sensitive but but dealable with. You yeah. know, it, it's not a hundred point scale. It's not it's not a yeah. three point scale. It, it, there's sensitivity, but it's not overwhelming. The other bit that I think the book does a really good, or the chapter does a, a really good thing, is about monitoring loyalty behaviour. And I think this then goes back to the sort of the three to five year mm. um, expectation or journey that you're going to sort of embark on. Because in year one, it can be tempting to say, hey, look, we've got really high customer satisfaction with those customers. That's going to mean increased sales straight away. Why haven't their sales gone up? Mm. Or we've got low satisfaction there, but they're still coming back and buying from us. This metric isn't right. Whereas I think once you start looking at, over a period of time, the retention, the related sales, the recommendations or the referrals, and perhaps moving into the whole customer lifetime value, I think that makes much more sense over a period of time than than an instant or a moment and trying to draw Mm. some conclusions from that instant or that moment. I agree, yeah. And I think one of the dangers is that we... This is true in advertising and marketing as well, I think. We're much less important to our customers than we like to think. <laughs> Absolutely. And Do you want to form relationships with all these organisations? No, not really. I just want them to do their job. Yeah. And, it's, they, and most of us as customers, like if, you th- if you reflect on your own thoughts and, and behaviour, 
Most of us have a whole load of suppliers that we quite like, who do quite a good job, that we'll happily buy from. You know, so I'll happily go to Sainsbury's, and I'll happily go to Morrison's, and I'll happily go to Aldi, and I'll happily go to wherever else. And that's how real customers behave in most markets most of the time. So unless you are wildly better than everyone else, how are you, you know, why would you expect your share of spend to be really overnight. <laughs> you know, wildly much more than your market share, which is probably what most people's is most of the time. Um, so I think it, it's a little bit naive to say that, you know, I've made this customer pretty happy, so therefore they're going to buy from me next time. Exclusively. Mm. Yeah. Did some really interesting work um, a few years ago with a, a retailer who had some fantastic internal MI on customer spend, how many transactions they'd done, and, it, we, and we were doing large sample, um, large sample size, and, I, and we did it over four surveys. The surveys were every six months. So we could build up a model of where we could see changes in satisfaction and how that did start translating itself into pounds. And there was a, a, a point that when you got to, you were really maximizing the share of wallet. Again, it wasn't exclusive, but you could get up to that point. And that proved really compelling evidence to the organization to say, hey, if we can move from X to Y, look, we know their spend will go from A to B, so let's make sure we do that. And we know the recommends will go up and all, all the other things. And it was one of the best clients that I've worked with was actually building that up. And they did it over four surveys with a lot of internal data to, mm. to put into the uh, you know, uh, you know, equation. And that was really, really sort of powerful. That was powerful stuff. Yeah, and I think the... You mentioned customer lifetime value. It, it, one of the things that, that continually perplexes me, really, is how little that concept has, has gained traction over the years. Because it, it feels to me that, especially with the emphasis on data that's everywhere at the moment, more and more organisations should be thinking in customer lifetime value terms. The catch is that it's just quite hard to do, and people give up, frankly. Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> and it, I think it's partly because it's an impossible question to answer. But I think if you take the approach, well, I'm not going to be able to come out with a scientific figure that can actually be substantiated, but you're going to be in the right area and you're going to see that this figure is really high or really low. I think that sort of gives you what you need for we're using this or we're using this information. I think for, for, you know, from that point of view, and part of that is some of it is very difficult to quantify how much is a referral worth, how much is a recommendation worth, how less price sensitive do you become. But I think if you can prove those things are all moving in a way that's advantageous to your business by a certain degree, you start to build up a, a, a good picture of customer lifetime value, mm. would be my opinion. I don't, have you calculated anything more specific than... I think very few, but you can get bits and pieces. I mean, I think, are you ever going to get to a precise number that, that's unchallengeable? I, I don't think so, no. But I think what you can do is definitely prove bits of it. And it, it's surprising to me that people don't, haven't done that more, uh, particularly in B2B markets, I think. Mm. I think they sort of instinctively do it. Um, yeah. to, we all know who are, you know, the eighty twenty rule, the 20, top handful of clients yeah. are. But have we really sat down and thought about it? And what I wonder, and what what I suspect, is that we're aware of this of the of the big spenders, the people who contribute to, a lot to our turnover. I've got a feeling that there's a, a secret lump of lifetime profitable clients that we perhaps 
don't spend enough time thinking about, who aren't, you know, the big jazzy, they've spent yeah. millions and millions of pounds with us, but consistently, quietly, and with a good relationship, yeah. you know, e- easy and cheap to serve, tick away, being profitable for years and years and years and years. Yeah. Have you heard the Barnacles Butterfly story? Mm. Well, for those who haven't, um, it's about, you know, the type of customer you want is not a butterfly, someone who flits from here to there, here to there, and changes all, all the time, which is traditionally what a advertising or marketing campaign would attract. Someone you come in butterfly. What you're looking for, and I think partly what you're describing there, Stephen, is your barnacle customer who stays, who sticks and stays with you through good times and bad times. And I think you're right. They often go unnoticed because they're never quite at the top of the list with spends and you never hear about them. Mm. They are just, and they're really efficient service because they know you and they're quiet and you, and they have a great fit with you. Mm. And I think you're right, making sure that those people are visible within the organization and are probably where a lot of the profits comes within the organization. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's a trick a lot of organizations or a blind spot a lot of organizations mm. have. Okay, well, I think that probably wraps up uh, our chapter on on monitoring performance over time. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, If you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at tlfresearch.com. And we'll be back next month with Chapter 12, which is Actionable Outcomes. (laughs)